Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, last episode, we had a break from format as we interviewed the iconic artist, June Brigman. Uh, we are thrilled to be back here today with uh, with special guests to review the next issue of the X-Men, which means we gotta go back to the week before really quickly. So we reviewed X-Men number 34 with Connor Goldsmith and Steve Orlando. Uh, none of the content of that issue really matters for today's issue. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to really summarize much, except a couple issues ago, Professor X got kidnapped by this group Factor 3 that nobody knows anything about yet. And a few issues before that, we met the Banshee. That's really all you need to know stepping into this one. <laughs> uh, oh, I guess uh, one more piece. There was a few issues ago where the X-Men were looking for allies and they invited Spider-Man to join their team in like one panel. And he was like, hell no, and he got out of there. That's, that's pretty much all you need to know. So uh, as we jump into today, we're going to start with uh, introductions of each of our guests. We are joined by uh, my regular co-host, Heather, uh, the incredible drag queen, uh, Demanda Martini, and the uh, letterer, Ariana Marr. And I'm so happy all of you are here. It's such an honor to have you here. Now, let's have you each introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns. Tell us who you are and what you're doing. And then uh, the question I have for everybody during introductions today is very simply, what's your favorite Spider-Man story? Uh, let's start with Demanda. Hi, I'm Demanda Martini. I am a drag queen, cosplayer, theater performer. Uh, I have the lovely nickname of the Chanteuse of Southern Maryland. Again, she's very niche. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm a huge nerd. I do comic book conventions. I also perform all around the Washington, D.C. area. Um, favorite Spider-Man story. Um, so I used to be a part of another podcast. So we did a whole Spider-Man month. So Spider-Man is not my favorite. Um, but I will say that the 90s absolutely bonkers nonsense of Maximum Carnage is probably my favorite because it is like balls to the wall. You get zero character development. Everyone is just fighting death cool people look awesome splash page it is it is pure 90s just crazy pants so i would say that's probably like my favorite spider-man book and heather i'm heather my pronouns are she her um i'm not doing a whole lot right now i'm currently unemployed yay <laughs> um but I honestly don't have a lot of it. Spider-Man is one of those other comic book series that I don't have a ton of experience with outside of the movies. And really the only movies that I have a lot of experience with are the Tobey Maguire ones because, you know, that's just how it works. <laughs> I've seen the Andrew Garfield ones and they made absolutely no impression on me and I have not seen any of the Tom Holland ones. I know that that is a travesty, but there, there we are. I haven't seen um, and so... I mean, the original, like, Tobey Maguire movies always have a special place in my heart. Um, but just from things I've seen around, I'm actually, I think I'm a big fan of Spider-Gwen. I think that she would probably be a favorite of mine if I were to really delve into that because of who I am as a person. <laughs> She's a drummer and she has an amazing costume. I could see it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I don't really have a whole lot of experience, so I don't have a lot to say on this question. Uh, and Ariana. Um, my name's Ariana Mar, uh, she, her. 
I am a letterer for Marvel and DC Comics. I'm currently the, I finished up the run of Crush and Lobo at DC and I'm the new ongoing letterer for Detective Comics. And then over in Marvel, I've lettered um, Hellions, Excalibur and Sword. Um, those series tied up. So very soon I'm going to be, I just finished working on uh, Marauders with Steve Orlando and um, I'm going to be doing Knights of X and also lettering um, X-Men Red uh, as well as Silk. And um, there's a new um, Spider-Gwen series that's really fun. It's really, really fun to letter. So uh, I've been working on a lot of titles like that as well as several others. Um, but yeah, I've been a letter for more than 10 years now. And uh, now it's my full-time job. Which is um, so amazing. <laughs> I like this job a lot. It's I get to read a lot of comics that uh, I don't often get a chance to read because I'm so busy lettering. So now I get to actually enjoy them. <laughs> um, I'd say my favorite Spider-Man story can be read online because it's a fanzine. It's called Spidey Zine. So if you Google up Spidey Zine, it's probably the first thing you find. It's by uh, Hannah Vardit, V-A-R-D-I-T. And it's just like, it's a, it's a web comic, basic web, web comic, but it's, it's cute. It's just, um, it just centers around Peter Parker as Spider-Man and little bits of his life. If he was, you know, an actual teenager who was also actually Spider-Man. And what would this kid be like? Would he like walk someone home who he seems in danger and then talk their ear off about Cowboy Bebop? Of course he would. <laughs> I like slice of life stories a lot. Um, they're really fun. Uh, I get to enjoy a lot of them with the um, Marvel Voices anthologies because those are all about these little moments in all of these superheroes' lives. So that's that's been really good for me too. And I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I, uh, I've i read every Spider-Man comic book ever. I love Spidey. Uh, he is secondary to my love of the X-Men, of course. But he, uh, Peter Parker and the other versions of him, there's some really iconic storylines along the way. If I had to choose two favorites very quickly, uh, Brian Michael Bendis's Ultimate Spider-Man back at the beginning was so revolutionary in changing the way we see the character. And my favorite Spidey story of all time was Dan Slott's Superior Spider-Man story in which Dr. Octopus takes over the mind and body of Peter Parker. And uh, it's just such a great story. He, he took years to tell it. It was long form and it was amazing. Um, so those are my favorites. Uh, Ariana, I have a thousand questions for you, but I'll keep it contained to, uh, to uh, your surprise. Uh, I'll keep it contained <laughs> to, uh, to a, a reasonable amount. But before, uh, before we jump in, I, we just have to let Demanda talk about what she is wearing currently, because I, I read comics to prepare for this, and Demanda has been putting on makeup and accessories for, uh, for hours, and I think it's amazing. So uh, tell us, uh, last time Demanda was on the podcast, she came in Jean Grey's cat mask costume, which I loved. Uh, tell us about your look today. So um, I, for, I was going to do it in my intro, and then, of course, I get distracted talking about myself. So um, <laughs> for, also, I use she, her pronouns uh, in drag. Um, I am Julia Carpenter uh, Arachne. Um, I'm not wearing like the full, because again, uh, I believe we're just doing audio. So I'm not wearing like the full mask. I do have it, but I, I'm not wearing it because then you can't see my face. Um, so the reason I wore this, first of all, it's the only spider uh, costume that I have. 
because uh, as I said, like Spider-Man's not my favorite. Julia Carpenter is my favorite Spider-Person. The only other Spider-related costume I have is uh, kind of a new one, uh, is the Red Cat sort of alternate version of uh, Mary Jane Watson. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, the other reason that I wanted to wear her today is that there is the sort of buzz about uh, a new Madam Web um, movie, which is so, or movie or potentially Disney Plus series. Again, I'm not sure what the sort of rumor mill is currently saying, but Dakota Johnson is currently attached to it, which is also kind of random. Um, so because Dakota Johnson is attached, people are thinking they're probably gonna do just straight to Julia Carpenter, younger version of Madam Web because the original Madam Web, of course, is uh, an old lady. And I, I don't know if people think that, I mean, I of course would love to see like, full life story of Madam Web um, from, you know, when she was young, first discovers her powers, gets old. Again, another one of my favorite characters is Destiny. Like, give me old lady fashion, like 100%, please. Um, so anyway, uh, there is sort of like speculation that there's going to be, that Julia Carpenter is gonna be joining the uh, Sony Spider-Verse. Uh, you look phenomenal. Uh, there's there's a shocking number of female Spider-Man cosplay options out there uh, because, you know, Spider-Man's been redone and retold and reformatted so many times. But this is a classic version of the uh, Julia Carpenter Arachne story. Uh, uh, and for those of you who don't know who Madam Web is, she's basically Spider-Man's version of Destiny. She's an old lady who can tap into the future and she has lots of things, but uh, she eventually- And also blind because apparently you have to be blind to see the future. Uh, we 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 did the Juggernaut trial a little while ago. There's a story where Juggernaut storms in, and he's he's been ordered to kidnap her for money, and he rips her off her life support machine, and is like, "Oh no, she's gonna die!" And so he leaves her there and runs away. <laughs> we just read that story a few weeks ago. Good job, Kane. Good job. <laughs> uh, yeah, you look phenomenal. Uh, thank you for for coming in costume, uh, Ariana. Let's begin with the simplest question, uh, which is maybe not so simple. Uh, tell us your career path. How did you wind up where you are now? Um, as a hobby, it that's how it started. Uh, my day job back a decade ago, I had studied for many years and had been a Japanese English translator in Kawasaki City Hall. And when I was there, I was like, okay, I worked so hard. This is my career path. I'm in my dream job. I'm in this working for this, you know, municipal um, office right next to Tokyo. I get and, to live and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pause you for one second. That means you're fluent in Japanese. Oh yeah, yeah, which is amazing. Okay, continue. <laughs> and I thought I thought that's where I wanted to be, but uh, I realized that translation might have been fun, but interpretation is not so fun. Especially, um, it was really difficult for me to focus. I didn't realize at the time, but I I do have ADHD and and trying to focus on other people's words when there's so much rolling on in my own head really made the job difficult for me. And I was trying to find ways to de-stress from work by not doing anything related to work. And there is one comic book shop in uh, Tokyo. They used to have it in, uh, I think it was in, uh, not Akihabara, uh, Asakusa. Asakusa? No, no, uh, Harajuku. They had it in Harajuku. Then they moved it to the to the other side of town, but it was called Blister and they sold American comic books. And I grew up on, you know, Western comic books, but we kept living overseas so often that I didn't get to like read everything in order. So I would just go to the comic book store, 
once a week or so, buy a big stack, go home and read that in English and rest my brain from all the Japanese I was translating that day. <laughs> and I realized that I really enjoy the makeup of comics, like how they were made. And um, over time, I, I had Adobe Illustrator as a gift from my dad. And I would just look up tutorials and teach myself how to do it. I um, started lettering a friend's uh, like fan web comic based off X-Men and stuff just for fun. And then a few months later, that same friend had a gig with as a colorist for a job. And she's like, you want to come in as a letterer? So that was my first gig. And uh, it went terribly. So then I just did indie work after that, mostly lettering friends web comics, just things that were fun for me and still paid. Um, after many, many years of just doing indies and several titles and working here and there, it suddenly grew into, I have a day job and then I also have a night job career and it's too many hours. I have to give up one or the other. And just at the time that I was thinking I have to give up lettering and, and work at my current day job at the time uh, two years ago, which was a software tester at Nintendo, I got um, a message from the head of virtual calligraphy, which is uh, uh, contracted with Marvel Comics. And he asked me to be a letterer on the team. And he was like, you know, there's not going to be a lot of benefits. You're a freelancer. And it's like, do you understand I work in the tech industry? There are zero benefits here. <laughs> I'm losing nothing <laughs> doing this. So I quit my day job and made lettering my new day job. And um, that's pretty much the path that took me here. It's just been a long time of working with various people, building up a good reputation from turning things in on time and putting a lot of thought into my work and um, eventually uh, finding myself at Marvel. Um, by that time, I had been working with DC on several things and um, eventually caught their attention. So they put me on a few titles, but I only do a few titles with DC. So that way I don't um, overwhelm myself because I'm doing a huge chunk of work with Marvel right now, especially now that we're getting all these new X-Men books out. Yeah, I, yeah. I was very eager to get to work on several of them again. So I'm really excited to get to be on Marauders and um, the other titles as well. This is going to be fun. <laughs> you, I know you can't tell us, but do you know who the ninth Marauder is? Nope, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we don't often stop to think about how the sausage is made, right? Using that old that old reference. We, we hold a comic book in our hands and we don't think about the different pieces that put it together. Artists have to pay attention to small details and costumes and hair length and fashion styles and all these things that are happening for characters. Letterers have to do the same thing with fonts and color styles and different things that you're using for individual characters that might be on the same page. Tell us what uh, what you do as your day job. And then kind of side question, what are the challenges that you face along the way? What are the hard parts about lettering? Mm, the hard parts about lettering is usually the stuff that have nothing to do with lettering. <laughs> the fun part is the lettering bit. Um, when it comes to my day job, a big majority of it is uh, answering emails so that everyone is on the same page where I'm at. Editors need to know where everyone's going and what all the moving parts are because they're the central hub and uh, it's good to keep them in the loop on anything. Um, on top of uh, emails and such, I also um, 
taking the scripts and the artwork, break them down, set them up on the page, and then I start doing the lettering work. And there are challenges from time to time, particularly with writers who get really clever ideas that they want to see executed in the lettering. And that's like my favorite part of the job. When they ask me for something really weird, and then I push it a little further to try to get what they want. So there are certain examples of what that looks like. Um, examples of that include uh, the design I had, the lettering style I had to do for Demon Days, because in Demon Days, it's all hand-drawn. Um, a lot, a good deal of the work is um, hand-colored by marker or by watercolor, and trying to put digital lettering on top of it in, in like, say, as I would with a Hickman book, you know, or any kind of House of X style, it has a very specific style that's very clean and to the point. And if I were to put that kind of clean style on top of Demon Days, it just wouldn't look right. It would look a little off. It would sit on top of the artwork and not be a part of it. So, um, part of that work early on, I spent a good deal of time of it, was developing a lettering that didn't look too out of place with the artwork. Because there was no way I was going to make it perfectly in line with the artwork because I was not hand drawing it in. But I was going to try to make a style that was the lines weren't completely as even or um, it wasn't completely as clean, but it, it felt like a part of that world. So that when you're reading Demon Days, you're not taking out of the experience while reading the story. Mm -hmm. um, another one is uh, Crush and Lobo. Uh, often Mariko Tamaki and uh, the editor, uh, um, Andrea, they would come up with these ideas, like really wild ideas, and then throw it at me and be like, can you do this? And like um, having text display all across the page in a specific way, because this is the thought in their head and it's kind of covering the panel, but can't cover the artwork. Um, or it, it would be like they, in DC comics, unlike Marvel DC comics, they'll have the credits on the page in, in the interior artwork. So it's up to the letterer to design the credits page. Um, that's why for the entire detective comic storyline that's running right now weekly, I didn't want to overburden myself by designing a new titles every week. So it's all in line with the same storyline. It's just part one, part two, part three, and all the same style. But with Crush and Lobo, each issue had a different idea. Usually it was credits on the side of coffee cups or tumblers, because there's a lot of drinking coffee throughout the whole series that was like almost thematic um like polaris and x-men <laughs> yeah exactly so so trying to sit down and vector design those objects and make them look good on the page was an additional trickiness so there's a lot of vector designing there's a lot of coming up with a style and adhering to it for the rest of the series usually the first issue is the most difficult but when it comes to X-Men comics in this current era, even the first issue is relatively easy because everything works from the same style. Um, if you notice with all the X-Men books, the lettering is all pretty consistent throughout. So if you're reading one issue of Marauders or another issues of Excalibur, the lettering isn't part that's gonna throw you off because it's the same. Sure. Um, so that's actually really easy to ease into and be like, I know the voices, I know the style, I just have my lettering templates set up ahead of time and I just go. Um, but another part of my work also includes production. 
because every once in a while you'll see me listed in Marvel titles as letterer and production. And that's usually times where I'm updating the credits page, the next page, the, um, the data pages, and including those in. It's not all the time. It's just sometimes we, we do that work as well to help carry the load because there's a lot of books going out every week. Well, those data pages is something entirely different. Yeah, when you're putting it onto computer screens or stretching a whole journal page across the whole, yeah, that's that's fascinating. It's, it's tricky, and um, I gotta I gotta appreciate the bullpen on on days when I don't do the data pages, but I see them doing a especially complicated data page, and it's like, cheers to you. I didn't want not want to do that one. <laughs> uh, particularly, I'm thinking of like uh, Kieran Gillen's Eternals, where he's got these big pages full of like all the deviant names organized into mm -hmm. categories like it's just insane and it's so carefully organized but there's a lot of those in the x-books lately uh yeah a tricky one was the uh i had to i was given the notes from our script and i had to design on the first issue of sword the entire organization chart mm. for the teams and departments of sword and make sure they were color-coded correctly and they all corresponded with the data pages which also had color codings as well Okay. That was interesting. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, this is this is meant to be a a cute question, not a like. Uh oh, but uh, have you ever made a big? Can I pause one second? To oh, please, please. When I tell you, so I'm a huge spreadsheet queen. Like I have spreadsheets on spreadsheets on spreadsheets for all my <laughs> stuff. And like talking about like organizing stuff and color coding, I'm like, oh my god, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm like that sounds fascinating and wonderful. Oh yeah, my like a big chunk of my time is spent streamlining and streamlining and streamlining my process so that it can go as fast as possible to the point where all the pages are linked up on the templates and they just run. And I I totally get you there. <laughs> uh, uh, have you ever made a big mistake in one of your books? And if so, what happened? Oh yeah, there is. There's one, I mean, I make several mistakes, I'm sure, all the time. Um, I try to avoid them, but they can happen. But there's one that I keep thinking is egregious that I made. And it was in an issue of Excalibur where um, someone shoots a, a long gun at Gambit and he reacts and there's an explosion. And so in the script, I had it, I saw the explosion, I saw on the page panels, the reaction, it was a really dramatic move. So I ended up going all in for like half an hour designing this sound effect that goes straight towards Gambit uh, as the bullet is heading towards him. And it looked cool. I even used some transparencies so you can see it kind of be a part of this halo of action that goes straight towards him, except that wasn't the point of the action happening in that panel. It wasn't the bullet heading towards him. It was him grabbing the bullet in midair and, and throwing it to the ground with his kinetic powers. So I should have put the sound effect towards the ground so people would know what the heck he's doing. As it is, it looks like he's just getting shot and then everything's blowing up and he's fine. And I just felt like, ah, oh, I could have done that better. And I realized so late, it's like, I just do, I do not have the time to fix that. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tropes when it comes to lettering that I'm not sure people take time to realize. And I'll, I'll toss some out there that are just classic. There's a, when you've got the little dots instead of the, the pointy line, it means a thought instead of a word, right? If, yeah. it's, uh, if it's a lighter, lighter coloring, it's whispering, or if it's mm -hmm. bold print, it's shouting. 
Uh, yeah. but, then, but then it's the it's the pows and the zaps and the whams and the sound effects and the color you use and the exclamation points and how much space they take up on the page. Uh, mm -hmm. is, is that fun to come up with the sound effects or do the writers do that for you often? Um, the writers often write down the sound effects, but I will edit them on the fly if I need them just slightly different and no one ever corrects me. So I keep having free reign over that. Like, for example, if they say um, like Zach or something like that for a big sound effect, but it's like Z-A-K-K-K, -K -K, I'm like, oh, I'm going to take a K off that or I'm going to add two on. <laughs> like little things that only I would notice, but it's like, I'm just going to edit that around a little bit. Because um, sometimes I know if it's a sound that's not going to completely correlate to what's going on there, they're going to ask me to change it anyway. So I'll just tweak it a bit. Um, I like designing sound effects because you get to choose different fonts or draw out your own fonts that are that both adhere to the mood and you can always design it in a way that the, it's from where the sound emanates that's where i made my mistake i mentioned earlier i need to think of where the sound effect emanates from not just putting the sound effect on there um, you can slap a sound effect on pretty quickly and sometimes when books are on the line and you have to get stuff done quickly you're just like okay it's there but for the most part, every, every time I'm putting down a sound effect, I think, where is the sound coming from and how do I direct your attention to it? Because you're usually not going to stop and read the sound effect. You're just going to know it's there. So I need to make sure that the colors contrast with the background colors enough that you can spot it, but you're not gonna stop to read it, usually not. Uh, do you use different fonts for different characters consistently? There's, let's see, not so much consistently, but certain books, um, I do reach into a specific set of fonts where I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm lettering Ultraman right now. They need these really straight lines and this kind of like cool, narrow looking font. And I have certain fonts that I choose from that I use for that. And uh, there is actually for Spider-Man, there is a Thwip font designed by our team that is perfect for using for thwips so i always use that on all the spider books if there's a thwip i use that specific font <laughs> steve orlando was pointing out in our interview he's like cyclops doesn't have a signature sound effect for his optic blasts he's, <laughs> he's like there's a zap and a zop and i'm like i'm like the worst one in the 60s book is frap that's the fap is used a lot in sound effects too and i always have to change that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, FAP is not a good sound. <laughs> also, um, what was it? Uh, WAP as well. Um, I've had oh, to change yeah. that around a lot. Yep. Um, because in recent years, that means something else. So I'm like, yeah, I don't want to use this when, you know, the uh, the Hulk is punching someone. <laughs> That's interesting to think. I mean, unless, of course, it's Emma Frost on the panel, then yes. Oh, yeah, then it's fine. Always, then it's fine. Always use WAP. Always. If she's slapping someone, that should be her sound effect. <laughs> Uh, Demanda, do you have any questions for Ariana? I, I mean, I'm yes, but no, because like kind of being put on the spot, like I would love to just sit. And, I love nerding out with other nerds and like <laughs> just talking about stuff. I don't have anything super, <laughs> I don't know. Because I, again, thanks for putting me on the spot, Chad. Um, You're welcome. But, but I would, again, I would someday, maybe if we happen to be at a convention together or something, I would love to just sit 
and chat and drink and just kiki and whatever because it's um I uh, as as Chad was saying like I've never sat to think about like all of the other parts of the book that kind of come in so like Mm -hmm. figuring like finding out about that kind of stuff is always so interesting like now that I'm more a part of x Twitter (laughs) and like know people and like you know I've talked you know privately with Steve Orlando about like other like things and like nerd stuff whatever it's kind of it's just interesting to be like oh well like there's this whole as you can see I'm a huge nerd like (laughs) so so it's just like finding out like it's sort of like getting the key to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and being like oh look at all this cool stuff like it's like behind (laughs) the scenes and like finding out how things work anyway I might think of something later but right now I, I I I don't I'm just so in awe and like, oh my gosh, like that's so cool that you get to do that every day. But I, I totally understand because uh, lettering, I will say, I don't believe it's an invisible art, but it is a subtle one. We're, my whole job is to make it so that you can read the script and you can enjoy the artwork without stopping and thinking about it. Yeah. So if you can read through an issue I've lettered without thinking about my lettering, then I've succeeded. If you stop to think, oh, that was a cool sound effect, then yay. But it's not necessary. Do the letters go on the page before the colors or after? Um, That's that pretty interesting. I, I was going to bring it up when we talk about the issue. But um, back in the day, uh, from what I'm aware and from reading what um, um, traditional like hand letters had talked about, back in the day, they would have the artwork. Then um, once they writ- wrote out the script, the letterer would go in before the colorist and draw it over the artwork or sometimes on vellum or other uh, other materials that you would paste on top of the artwork. But they would use the artwork to draw it all out and um, and put in all the letters and then it would they would go in with inks and then they would go in with colors. Um, and the process would change over the years. Nowadays, with the lettering, we can be the last step of the process and still make it look like part of the artwork. Um, there's tricks and, and things on Adobe Illustrator to push like characters and stuff in front of word balloons and and you don't it doesn't look any anything unnatural to the art. But um, so usually the process is that I will be sent a script and I will be sent the art and I just start lettering. And if it is color artwork or not, it's it doesn't matter either way. I'm going to start work that way. My only hope is that at the end of the process, I at, at least a, like a half hour before the book goes to print, I can see the color art. So then I can color correct all the sound effects so that they kind of look like they're a part of the page and not just guesstimating. Like I say, all of my Marvel books, since we also help with production towards the end to make sure the book goes out to print, um, I get to see the color art and I get to color adjust all my sound effects and make sure everything looks okay before it goes out. But when it, I'm working on DC works, um, it's some, it's they usually have the colorist and the letter working at the same time. And um, I'm not part of the production process. So sometimes nowadays I just have to blindly choose the colors in detective comics and hope for the best. Uh, so usually I'm looking into bright blues and yellows and reds and such. So they might look a little jarring, but you'll still be able to pick out the sound effects. 
but sure. uh, you can you can turn in your final um, lettering and still not see the colors. And the it's up to the production team to make sure it looks okay. So yeah, it's it's a very different process nowadays than how it was long ago. Yeah, yeah. And so while you're talking, I thought of a question. Oh, sure. So mm-hmm. when when you get the art, do do artists actually like strategically leave you a place for like the word balloons to go or do you have to like well again now like you know as you said a lot of stuff is on Adobe do you like shift stuff around in order for you to fit (laughs) word balloons and and things in well I can't shift stuff around because the artwork is would have to be manipulated on Photoshop but I work that's a raster program and I work on a vector program and they don't give me the materials in order also they probably would not want me editing the artwork (laughs) but yeah but uh, usually, really good experienced artists um, do think about where word balloons go and try to accommodate it. Whether they know the right placement for word balloons or how we approach it, uh, it's debatable because it's not an area that artists focus on, but they usually leave room towards the top of each panel because balloons float up, and um, especially for word balloons and such. So having little stuff you know, a little space above really helps a lot, especially when you have a lot of characters in one panel all talking together. The more space you have above, the more I can work with. Um, But the problem comes when you get a script and art and um, the artist hasn't accommodated for that space, then I'm going to have to letter on top of the artwork, be it characters or backgrounds and things that they probably took a lot of time drawing, but I have to cover so that I can put the script down. Um, if I'm really lucky, the writer will look at the artwork before they send me their script and they will edit their script. This is what we call a lettering script. And that's the edits they do when they see the artwork and they're like, oh, wow, I put this entire monologue in this panel and the panel is only an inch by inch big. (laughs) What do? And if they accommodate for it, it makes my life a lot easier. If they don't, I actually do something that maybe not all letterers do, but it has worked for me and an editor hasn't yelled at me yet. And that's, I will break down lines and break down sections and find where else they'll fit in the progression of the page where you're reading it and it's working for you, but it doesn't have to adhere to exactly what's on the script. Because sometimes the script and the art are going to be slightly different because the artists are contributing their own ideas to the page as well. And it's, once the artist does it, it's kind of difficult to make them change unless it's for something specific because Come on, give them a break. <laughs> like, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. If you work on an indie book, and, and I, I worked on one where the writer was uh, on the artist's case, it's like, oh no, we don't, we we can't see this object well enough. You have to redraw this panel, and it's like, why are you on their case? Just let them draw, and I'll make sure my your script doesn't interfere with the art in the wrong way. You can trust the letterer to do this for you. So there are cases where you have to find that um, balance between what the artist is trying to do and what the writer is trying to do, and then break that down and make sure it makes sense for the reader. 
I feel like I'm a kid watching an episode of Mr. Rogers where he, <laughs> where he would like take you on the tour of the crayon factory and show you how the crayons were made. Like this is <laughs> fascinating. I, I don't I don't think I've actually ever talked about this on the podcast. I just pulled it out. I, I, I uh, created a graphic novel years ago uh, called The Mushroom Murders. And I, I worked with a couple of letterers on my book and I had to like go grab it as you're talking and like, I'm looking at where they put the bubbles and like, I'm remembering going back and like placing things in there. And it, I, it's, it's accessing a different part of the brain that I haven't used in a really long time. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Um, I have two more questions for you. Number one, who designs the logos of books? Um, usually it's designed in-house by the bullpen or by specific designers. One really, um, not often discussed enough, but there are some real big superstars in the industry are designers who are specifically designers for book logos, design, like I'd say one of the most famous one of them is Tom Mueller for designing the entire House of X style. And he gets that recognition because he's in the credits. He doesn't have to go in and edit every single new data page and such, but he gave all the tools to the teams for them to work. And that deserves a lot of credit. He came up with a design style that can be used and reused for each issue because it's a week, it's, you know, it's a monthly series of all these. You have to have some kind of coherency between all the books. So now everything feels a lot more cohesive thanks to the design style he brought to the series. That's so cool. Before I ask my last question, Heather, do you have any questions for Ariana? Um, no, I just think it's all really super cool and I love seeing women in this space all the time. (laughs) And I know it's not quite right. Like I know that writing's a little bit different than lettering, but it's, I've always wanted to be a writer. And so hearing anything's close to that, I'm like, oh, I can do that too, maybe. (laughs) Uh, Actually, there are a number of writers who started off as letterers. Like I'm a career letterer. That's the only thing I really want to do. Writing is very challenging for me is I'll, I'll keep my stories in my head but when it comes to like who else can I think of there's a number of um writers that I know that either started in comics from lettering or from flatting for colorists mm-hmm. you know colorists need usually need another person to hire so that they can flat out all of and block out all of the areas that they need to color on a comic book page mm-hmm. and it's not often recognized because a lot of flatters, I think only one book in my entire career actually credits the flatter for their work. Um, but they they play a big part as well. So writers will often start there um, from these p- parts of the industry that often don't get a lot of recognition, but are essential to putting together comics. And that's how they start building a network of people. They get to know people, they get to work with people. If you're reliable and you help and you know you you are a part of the community, you grow as a person. So when you're like, oh, like if I suddenly say, okay, I finally have a story, I'm gonna debut it. I think that there will be people online who will support me for it because when they needed it, I supported them too. Yeah. So it's, it, it's definitely a way in. I mean, um, there's no technical breaking into comics in my mind. There's, you just find your place and make it grow, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's definitely one, one way to, you know, seed the ground. <laughs> If you were going to hand out one single issue that you've done to represent your work, like the, the, if you just chose one that you're most proud of, what would you choose? 
Oh, geez. Mm. Mm, that's tough. Um, I would say maybe Demon Days, one of those issues. Maybe Rising Storm was really good because I got yeah. to play with the 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 sound effects that Storm and Thor had where they were like semi-transparent and stuff like that for the lightning. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll say Demon Days. It, it definitely took me out of my wheelhouse and made me push myself into a new way. And I got to work with like really good friends. So I'm really happy about that. I, uh, I am so impressed by you and so inspired. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise and just like nerding out with us. This is wonderful. Thanks for um, having me on. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy you're on. Thank you for being here. Uh, so with that, let's transition into our review of uh, X-Men number 35. Um, we're going to start out just by kind of examining the cover. Uh, we have uh, the X-Men uh, <laughs> cowering underneath a launching Spider-Man. And it says in giant letters across the bottom, along came a spider, dash, dash, exclamation point, end quote. Uh, tell me your thoughts on this cover. Was it effective? It what did you like about it? It is borderline pornographic. <laughs> like it is, it is so suggestive, and it's just it. Like when when you when you sent me the issue and I looked it up, I was like, uh, oh oh, <laughs> that, that's how we're looking at Spider Man. Okay, but also I feel like they really missed out on a chance to really define his ass. <laughs> I mean, the art back then was not as as. Uh, <laughs> As realistic as it is now. <laughs> I I like Cyclops is like full on dance mode. He's like <laughs> leaning back, arms in the air. Uh, Ariana, what did you think of this cover? It looks like a TikTok prank. Like it looks like Spider Man's going in crotch first, jumping on top of Cyclops, and he is not ready for this. <laughs> it's also a little misleading that Marvel Girl is there, and it's like Jean was totally sat out for this most of the session. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. but but like but like also the the posing is always so funny so as a cosplayer it is always so hard to like figure out like how do i pose to make it not just be like the same like superhero pose i'm also terrible like i do hand on hip kind of stuff so i'm like these are like how do i make everybody different we're gonna do like <laughs> like you know just like weird weird arm motions and uh, like, I mean, probably the, the cover artist was like, I don't know, just put their arms in different directions and just like, it, <laughs> it uh, kind of shows just how difficult Spider-Man is to draw, because it's not just that the costume is overly complicated with the details and the webbing and such that you have to do that conforms to his body. But like, he's constantly in these aerobatic poses that are not completely feasible and they're trying to make it work without any reference. It's, it's like having a jumping pose without a reference. Well, and this is back in the days when we get Spider-Man's web pits. I forget about those sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> because, like, it, it, it's definitely something that, like, I've noticed, um, you know, when, like, Batman the Animated Series came out and they had the Zatanna episode and Zatanna did not have her classic fishnet tights. It's like, oh, because they're a pain in the ass to draw. And mm -hmm. so it's just like, the, you know the fact that artists anyone drawing spider-man it's like we we have web on this like 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 we're, we're really doing this like this is the thing that we're doing and having and having to do that in such a small 
space. It's it, it's got to be her to draw him. And like his ankle looks broken on on like mm-hmm. the one side. It's such so just it's just such a weird, such yeah. a weird pose. Yeah, with like the foreshortening of one leg and the other leg, he kind of looks like um, when you get um, like a a Barbie, well, not a Barbie doll, but like one of those, you know, play dolls, but like their legs are on ball bearings or whatever. So they kind of <laughs> twist around. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Have them in a weird pose. That's kind of like what he looks like in that or, one. Or like how has a, great a, lot of, a, a lot of female um, uh, figures where instead of just like giving them the regular like H shape, they gave them the V-shaped leg. So like their legs like twisted in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like when you get a Barbie doll and you suspend her on a string from the air, spread her legs, bend her knees, and then launch her crotch first toward the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of surprised by the title of this issue though. I don't know why they went with Along Came a Spider because the whole point of this story was Beware the Spider. Thank you. That was going to be one of my points. Yeah, that was weird for me. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a classic nursery rhyme reference, right? Like a, a long yeah. spider and sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. Is that that's I think that's the right the right. Yeah, yeah. like I understand the reference, but it, it's like that's not the the impetus of this particular story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thomas loved himself a literary reference, though. Almost every title is some sort of literary reference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So as we jump in on page one, uh, let me read the credits really quickly. We've got Roy Thomas as, as the writer and Werner Roth, and it gives us a, a blurb about them that says, the towering triumph of titanic talent and tumultuous toil, uh, inks by Dan Adkins. And we have a, a an irregular letterer. Normally we have Artie Simic and Sam Rosen back then, but this one this time we have Jerry Feldman, who is someone I don't know a lot about. I should, I should research Jerry Feldman. Now, uh, as we open the issue, we get a kind of great splash page of Banshee. In his first appearance, the only time we've seen him really, he looked like a like a, a reject from Whoville, uh, but he's looking a little more normal here. He's got a weird hat on that a lot, a lot of people notice. We'll learn the relevance of it a little later. Uh, but he's flying across the page and thinking, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna attempt an Irish accent here. For weeks, I've searched the mountains and valleys of Central Europe for the sinister group known as Factor 3. And now at last I feel I am near its secret sanctuary. I only pray that it's time to prevent it conquering the earth. That's the only time I'm going to do that this whole episode. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, so first of all, his design, it is getting better. Um, as I said on Twitter, when you first posted the images of Banshee, so, uh, and forgive me, I did not listen to that episode. No, it's but okay. Did you guys talk about like the racist caricatures that, that, design was based on in that issue. Yeah, that was our episode with Sean Isaac. So yeah, we had, okay. we had a lot to say about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so like it is better, although in some panels later, like the references still come back and it's still kind of awkward, but they also give him this interest. So that like, it looks like they're trying to give him like pointy ears to make him more like, look more like Faye. Uh, again, like referencing sort of like magical stuff and uh, even like the random I mean, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but like the random man on the next page, which again, like, why, why are we talking about this like random man being like, oh, what is what is this howling that I hear? It's so traumatic. Anyway, um, but but what I did, I, the other thing I wanted to mention is how kind of amazing is it that I mean, we're now what? So this is 1965. Mm-hmm. We're now six is it 60 years like 60 years later and this is still the design of banshee like this is still like what he wears in a comic book that came out 
you know, whatever the the one where um, the cover date on this is uh, August nineteen sixty seven. I just checked. Yeah, it out. so 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 nineteen sixty seven, but like the comic book that came out not too long ago when John Proudstar was resurrected and sees Banshee still wearing this costume, <laughs> like like that's kind. I mean, obviously he's had. Other on top of that, his daughter also wears the same costume. Exactly, and it's just like obviously they they both worn other things but they always come back to like this classic green and yellow high collar with the thing so the only reason i haven't done siren yet is because i haven't figured out what i want to do like doing like these like wing things that, mm-hmm. that, that they wear um but I, I i think that just speaks to like i'm glad that his face shape changed but like i just think that like an when a, when a design is this iconic it's just like oh yeah i know who this character is mm-hmm. I actually really love his design. Uh, I think he stands out. There's so many forgettable characters in this run in the early 60s, but Banshee is unforgettable. I love him. And he's so sexy in the modern comics. <laughs> he's really quite delicious. Listen, hey, hey, Irish daddy. Like, for real. <laughs> so, side note, a friend of mine, uh, Luke Marlowe, uh, who is a book editor, nerd, whatever, uh, he and I are, have been friends for a long time. Um, he literally just recently got a commission of like sexy banshee that he's gonna get tattooed on his body. Ooh. That, 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 that's like based on that like classic Gen X thing where he's like lifting up his sweater, his like sweatshirt. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a sexy <laughs> pose. Yep. <laughs> So Banshee is uh, flying through the hills. He's screaming and it just comes across as an ooh. It sounds like a little ghost, which is, you know, Banshees are ghosts, like the mythical creatures, I get it. Uh, On page two, we see a a shepherd of some kind or a cow herder hearing Banshee like, oh, what is the sound? Uh, Now, if uh, Heather, I think you were with me. Do you remember Professor X's hermit costume? Yes, actually, that's what I was just thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Professor X in the issue with the locust, he dressed like a hermit and he had a walking suit. And he's like snuck up on the locust and was like, surprise, it's me. And this man (laughs) looks like Professor X in his hermit costume. (laughs) <laughs> Banshee screams at the mountain. He has some ultrasonic probings. Uh, have any of you recently been ultrasonic probed? Just wondering. No, thank God. And he he uh, discovers a shallow in the rock that pops open. There's a doorway, and there's a creepy spider robot inside that is just kind of bizarre in design. It's got like little mechanical legs. And like a like an eye periscope coming out of it, and it's apparently pretty dangerous. It zaps Banshee with a paralyzing ray out of its eye. Uh, Banshee throws him. He kind of throws up like a little sonic shield, a hypersonic howl. It calls he calls it, and then uh, he kind of glides himself to safety in the rocks below. Uh, Sirens be praised. The luck of the Irish is with me, he says, and they're always after his lucky charms. Uh, um, <laughs> so, so it. it it is interesting that so like obviously he flies on sound waves and he creates those sound waves but like instead of just giving him like just thought bubbles all the time they actually have him talking at some points so it's like can he also still produce the sonic scream while just actually vocalizing words. And like, is that more difficult? And if that's more difficult, why is he talking to himself out loud? Oh, so also, yeah. as someone who talks to himself out loud a lot, like it's a sign of mental illness. But like, maybe he it, 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 maybe he glides so for a while and he talks while he's gliding. Yeah, and like, and like, sorry, I, my monitor's over here, so that's why I keep looking. You're that great. Um, but like, it's it's such a because um, I can't remember which issue it was, but like someone mentioned, like obviously you're not gonna put 
uh, Banshee on a stealth team because he literally has to scream to like fly. Um, so, so it's just like, he has to continually produce the, the sound in order for him to just float on the, the, the thing. So it's like, um, and I think they did do it. It's one of the few things that I liked about X-Men First Class, the movie. I did not really care for that film, but the fact that they made it so that way, if he stops producing sound, he starts falling. Sure. <laughs> um, so it's just interesting that, again, they have him actually talk out loud, but they also still have like the ooh sound effect going mm-hmm. on. So it's like, is he is he flying on echoes of, of his sonic scream? Or again, getting a little too like- Yeah, it's I'm interesting. Gonna, and, and I'm just gonna drink for trying to make sense of a comic He's got six or eight different uses of his sonic scream that we've seen so far. He can affect people's minds. He can put them to sleep. He can create little shields. He can glide. He can fire concussive blasts. Which, uh, also, I don't think I've ever seen him do a shield again after this issue. I'd have to do a deep review, which is but, kind of- But, 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 but like, do, I, at least in any modern comic that I've read past 1991, sure. I would say I've not really seen him do like a sonic shield with with his screen. Yeah, we'd have to, well, for our listeners, do you know of times when Banshee or Siren use uh, their scream to create shields or blockers? We'll have to look that up. Um, Banshee narrowly makes it back to the chalet that he's been renting in the area. He needs to send a message to the X-Men immediately because he needs to warn them about this creepy spider robot that hurt him. Uh, now, we, we jump back to the X-Mansion where uh, the X-Men are frantically searching for Professor X. Uh, they're, uh, they're sorting through files. Beast is tinkering with Cerebro. Angel has been out searching and he finds some UFO tracks. That must be what took Professor X away from them. Uh, <laughs> but they still don't have really any clues. Uh, so they're gonna go out looking. But just then Iceman gets an alert from the Banshee. Uh, Banshee has sent out the message, calling X-Men, calling X-Men emergency all the way from Europe. But just before he can type a full sentence, <laughs> the paralysis ray has set in. He flew all the way back, typed that much, but he only gets the words out, beware the spider. Before he uh, before he passes out, then Factor Three swoops in in one of their creepy UFOs. Now this is our first time actually seeing Factor Three. We've heard them referenced a lot. They've been behind the scenes for nearly nearly a dozen issues now, uh, but we get to see them. We still don't know anything about them or who they are, but they have captured the Banshee and uh, they are giving orders to send another spider robot to America to make sure the X-Men aren't on their trail. So as we sum up those first five pages, uh, let's hear any of your thoughts or reactions to, to some, of these, uh, some of these pages. Ariana, what did you think of the lettering back then? Did Jack Sparling do a good job? Uh, yeah, I thought it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where you look at the lettering, at least in my perspective, and it's like, man, that was a rough hill to climb. Um, because I, I get the impression this was done in the Marvel method, which actually isn't done that much anymore. I can name only like less than half a dozen writers I've worked with so far that do the Marvel method. And that's when they write out a vague outline, hand it to the artist. The artist tells the story through the art. And then once the writer sees everything in the panels and stuff, they'll fill it in. And I get that impression because there's a lot of the um, thoughts and, and captions and things are more to describe what's happening in the scene and like more to um, help fill in any plot holes that they think are there. And 
Yeah, you get it's, characters shouting like, oh no, I'm falling in a hole as they're falling. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it kind of reminds me when I was reading the original um, uh, appearance of Thor and he's like, oh, here's this mighty Mjolnir and if I throw it, it comes back and it's like, we can see it in the art. <laughs> Kirby drew that, It's we can see it. And it's it's different nowadays. I think there's um, more trust put in the artist to explain what's happening through their art. But um, I mean, there's still examples I can think of where they fill in the gaps. Like there's this one scene I, I lettered recently where there was someone who was kidnapped and they didn't have their mouth gagged, but two panels later they had their mouth gagged. And so they're like, oh, let's put in some text here that has the bad guy saying it's like, yeah, let's shut you up or something like that, you know? And it's like implying it's like, okay, they did this. And that helps, you know, plug the plot hole a little bit so that you can understand what's going on. But this old school, they they definitely do that to um, an extreme where they're explaining so much. And that makes it so much harder for the letterer because you don't want to cover the artwork and you want to make sure that the reader catches everything but uh you have to separate it out into these smaller balloons so that you can get it piecemeal throughout the panel and it's like that's that's challenging so i am not going to be critical of like the style or the approach he did because considering the way he had to letter it at the time it by hand and that like he has to explain so much additionally in the script because of the this kind of approach towards it, it's like that's that's tough. <laughs> I'm impressed though when you look at the ooze behind Banshee. It's like uh, it's like big blocky letters with like uh, it looks like vibrations are passing through them. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, it makes the, me think uh, of, like it's funny because I can think of like oh I know how to do that in, in Illustrator. I bet I could. Like I don't have any books yet that I lettered with uh, Banshee in it, but I suddenly want to do that. <laughs> Or the uh, the mm behind the robot looks like little lines passing through it. Or on page three, mm-hmm. when you see the zot or the zzz, it's like little electrical bolts through it. Like you, you yeah, can tell yeah. they put a lot of effort in it. And I like the color change they did with the E sound when he puts up his shield. Like those little details are really neat. I That's also great. really like when um, he's calling on the X-Men and it's basically just the usual um, um, writing style for, for the letters, but he, puts, he erases these lines throughout so that you know that it's electronic, that it's kind of being filtered through um, static. And I really like that. Uh, Heather, did you have thoughts on the original uh, or or on page four when the X-Men are interacting and they're so frantically searching for Xavier? (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, it's just classic chaotic X-Men without Professor X. There's no there's this no soap opera in this one. I'm what? sorry. Go ahead. I apologize. Oh, no. I was just like, I just feel like they are always at a at a loss whenever Professor X is gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're not quite as organized as they probably could be. But <laughs> I also love when um, Bobby says, I hate to keep popping up like someone somebody from Western Union. And I'm like, does Western Union do that a lot? Like, <laughs> are they really insistent on delivering packages? Uh, I, so, I kind of like them without Professor X. So I, I also love that like, Hank and just like random screwdriver. We just, we're just shoving it in someplace, figuring out what it is. But also there's like this 
whole file cabinet. Like, what is Scott looking up in this? Yeah, it's like, like Professor Xavier's missing. Let me look in the file cabinet to see if there's yeah, an address. And, and, and it's also like, are, are, are we looking up the Dewey Decimal System? Like, what exactly are we like looking at in like these file cabinets? Like, it's it's like, oh, here's a clue. I'm gonna file it away in the C section for clues. Like, what like what are we what are we doing right now? It's I, I mean. I, obviously it's it's just sort of like you know whatever whatever again drink for trying to make sense but it, it's just it's just so funny to me that they're like sitting around this like random office when we if like it's supposed to be cerebro you know and we know it's like modern comics so like cerebro is like a room with like a helmet and like you know it helps project thoughts but like it back back in these comics cerebro is just like this giant computer that's like a wall you know like um the way that they did like Aram Zola and like uh, Winter Soldier, where it's just like these random giant computers that have just knobs and lights that do nothing and somehow everything at the same time. It's just it. This whole like reading this, I was like, this is this is comical. Like what? Like what? It, like what is what? Just going through files. Like it's it's like it's like giving an actor like look busy. So like I'm just busy work i'm 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 shuffling things i'm punching things i'm throwing levers just looking busy i'm be- being very busy right now yeah a part of me wonders like seeing cyclops going through the file cabinet it one made me wonder if this is like is this proto xavier files and is it like of the same content is cyclops going to go through these file cabinets and find oh here's the sheet on how to kill me what the heck <laughs> He's Why like, did Xavier write this? They're gonna discover the Xavier protocols early on. Who is this woman named Tessa who's a part of this <laughs> Hellfire Club? Get spoilers for like upcoming seasons. Like, oh, oh damn. Professor told us not to look in the cabinet, but we found the key, so oh well. <laughs> He has a son? What? <laughs> right. Is not a housekeeper? <laughs> uh, Heather, will you summarize pages six through ten for us? Tell us what happens. Yeah. Um, so, Cerebro, is it Cerebro that gives them the message? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. On ticker tape, apparently. <laughs> and it's, all it says is, beware the spider. And they're all really confused and they think it, it sounds like a practical joke, but the Banshee would hardly joke about factor three. Um, <laughs> and then at precisely this point, um, there's Peter Parker riding along in the country on his little motorbike, like a super cute little teen. <laughs> and I love where, you know, they introduce the one and only Spider-Man and then the asterisk says, you have heard of him, haven't you, from Insecure Stan? That makes me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's riding through the countryside on his motorbike and he's like, well, I'm tired of eating my own dust up and down the countryside, so I'm going to do the throw bit bit for a while. And so he goes down to a stream where there's a mill and while just, he's doing it just this. just happens to be right on the X-Men's like perimeter of their property, you yeah, know. Right on the perimeter of Professor X's property. Um, and then uh, something comes over him, making it all dark. And he says, hey, who turned up the light? If that TV weatherman was wrong again. And it's like, okay, honey. <laughs> 
Um, and so it's some sort of egg-shaped object heading his way. And it's the same thing that attacked the banshee with the spider. And so the spider comes out and he he was like, lucky I put on my spidey outfit this morning. And so he is Spider-Man. Except how does he wear a jacket and shirt over his web pits? Like, is it a really cold day and it's kind of <laughs> like thermal underwear? You know, it's like, oh, I want to wear something breezy, but... Man, it's so cold today. I'll wear my spider outfit underneath and that'll keep me warm. Unstable molecules can do anything. <laughs> the funny thing is that if he didn't have his costume with him, he he probably wouldn't have gotten into any trouble. <laughs> he could have taken care of the spider thing and the X-Men wouldn't have been on his case because he's just some rando. <laughs> yeah, and then I love how he like goes through this whole monologue to himself having like this full-on identity crisis um, when is spider-man not having an identity <laughs> i know that that is never. So funny. but like that, that that's definitely one of his like trademark moves it's like i'll fight you and also ponder my existence yeah <laughs> and 100%. so relatable relatable yeah. <laughs> you know being attacked by some strange metal contraption and he's going to wonder if he's really peter parker or if Peter Parker is just a disguise. <laughs> and so he has to fight the little metal spider. I mean, it, it's not little, it's real big. But he says, sorry, pal, we may be related for all I know. Still, I don't feel like sticking around for a family feud. <laughs> so he has to fight it. And he, let's see. And he gets into the mill because good thing that window was handy. <laughs> like they have to explain just in case you don't know from the artwork. It's like, oh, okay, there's a window. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a window there. <laughs> how we got through, okay. <laughs> and then um, Cerebro goes off to indicate the presence of a mutant. And so they're sure that it's the mutant that had to have attacked the Banshee. Even though it's not a mutant, it's a fucking robot. But we'll right. talk yeah, about I was really confused by that. So I'm, I'm wondering whether or not it's whoever is driving the the the, the egg. Yeah. So, so later later in the issue, they say Cerebro went off because it's a robot, but it must have been detecting the mutant who built this robot. Or <laughs> like it's just Cerebro does anything you want it to. Back. Yeah, Cerebro. Maybe Cerebro was broken because Hank went in with a screwdriver and he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, just drink for trying to make sense. Like, let's just move on. Heather, <laughs> uh, keep going. Um, and so now that Cerebro is fully operative again, they can find out where it's coming from, and so they tell. Gene to stay with Cerebro in case the Banshee contacts them again. And then the boys, because of course, the boys go out in a dark limousine. Um, Rolls Royce. Okay, the X-Men riding around in a Rolls Royce, though, is really, really hilarious. I do love how they talk about how they're going to have to hide the car when they arrive. After all, how many superheroes ride to the rescue in a Rolls Royce? And then there's a literal... Yeah, go go ahead. So how come we're broke all the time? <laughs> if Professor it's X has fucking helicopters and a Rolls Royce, why can't I afford bus fare, goddammit? <laughs> it's 
It's like seeing a bunch of teenagers climb into a Tesla to run off into the superhero. (laughs) (laughs) And so they're off to the rescue. They don't know what they're going to, but um, then Spider-Man defeats the metal spider. He I got it. I got to note really quickly. This yep. robot, there's like four panels of it making an mmm sound, and I think it's supposed to be like an electric motor. But every time yeah. I saw it, I just pictured it going like mmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that's it charging up, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And Spider-Man's like, oh, it's yummy at me. <laughs> <laughs> Delicious. Yeah. So he makes the metal spider blast itself, and defeats it but then he passes out just for a few short completely disintegrates yeah so there's no evidence it was there exactly it disintegrated and the egg that brought it is gone with a thwakum mind you yes (laughs) like the inconsistency of like the sound effects that this thing makes because there's because there's there's the mm, or i i I prefer to think of it as like the skexies just mm, <laughs> I do like the f- tap it does. That's yes. Nice. yes, yeah. And then there's the f- tap. There's a there's a skank or a skark or a skank, whatever. <laughs> um, and th- and I do then like the that s- it when it hits something really hard, it breaks the panel border and it goes into the gutter. That's always fun. Yeah, that's yeah. always mean. He knows you, it's being serious. Well, um, and, and and the eye, the eye scope is a little phallic, of course. And well, yeah. Spider Man's wrestling it and makes it defeat itself. But that's the panel where we need. Especially mm. <laughs> 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 how he turns the head into his body and then does that. It's like, wow, Peter, you you sure did that. <laughs> It's, but apparently it's a really fucking tough robot because Spider-Man's hard to fight, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Demanda, will you take over on page 11? Tell us what happens next. Sure. So so Spidey passes out because, of course, he does and then wakes up and the thing's gone and then the which, X-Men show up. After which, let me just know, Jean's not the only one that faints. <laughs> um, and, of course, I mean, like, it's Spider-Man. He's got to be the spider that the Banshee was talking about because why else would he be here? Like, obviously, that's the whole thing. This, tro- the, again, this trope of the superheroes fight, there's a misunderstanding. And so then, it, anyway, it's it, obviously this is, you know, from 1967. So this sort of started the trope, but it's such like this basic thing that it's, it's so exhausting. Um I almost would have enjoyed it more if Banshee's message said, beware the spider, comma, man. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, so, uh, of course, there, there's there's the fight. Uh, he, the, in, in typical fashion, again, if you've ever seen a superhero fight before, they first try to go one-on-one. Uh, so Angel, of course, jumps in first, and then there's the whip whip he he gets his and then he's like i've had to tussle with the vulture before and all winged people are all the same i'm like that's really racist <laughs> um not all winged people are the same um so then of course it's beast's turn so he tries to just use brute strength spider-man like flips around and kicks him out the window and also why is there this window in this mill where it's literally just a hole in the wall like there's not like a pain there's not like a screen there's not Anything is just this open hole in the wall. So then Beast tries. Um, 
uh, Beast is falling, so Angel's like, oh, I gotta go save him, which again is another typical trope to keep like a flyer out of a battle. It's like they have to go catch all of the people. Uh, Used a lot, especially in like the X-Men animated series where literally Rogue's job is to just like catch people. Like yeah. she does that a lot in the cartoon. Um, two two moments during this fight that I think are delicious are both angel centric. One is when Spidey webs Angel's wings and pulls him back, and the sound effect is yank. <laughs> <laughs> and the second is when Angel falls in the water, and before he can say beast, he has to like shake his wings and get all the water off. <laughs> right, which right. is great. Um, like that 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 page was for me not the strongest of art and then the next page is like one of the stronger pages in the whole issue because the whole grabbing um angel with the webbing you can look at the webbing in detail and it's like just kind of scribbled in there and it's like oh someone did not want to draw webbing today <laughs> but the next next page is um spider-man versus beast and it's like it looks dynamic and really cool like their poses are neat and it makes a lot of sense I almost wish there wasn't as much dialogue of the, them throwing at each other so you could see more of it. And we and we get to see Spidey do what we all want to do to the beast, just kick him right in the ass. <laughs> just kick him. Just kick him. Because he's the worst. He's um, just, so, he he so looks like a big bro in uh, pajamas. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so then Iceman tries to sneak up on him, but of course Spidey's spider sense. Um, and then Cyclops is like, I can't shoot him because, you know, I, 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 I you know, whatever, because a reason for Cyclops not to use his powers. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Gene is just chilling. I would have loved it again, like having like what like the modern trope is now of her just like sitting there with like a Starbucks cup, just like, yep, I went and got coffee. Like, what else am I going to do? Like, just, <laughs> just sitting here. She's busy so, filing still. She's still going through the files. And it's a good th- and it's a good thing she found out about the crystal randomly in Banshee's headpiece <laughs> that Professor X planted there. Because it wasn't the wasn't the originally the headpiece that he wore a bomb that the Factor Three put on his head. Yes. So Professor X instead turned it into a tracking system instead of a bomb. It gives him a reason to wear his headband still. Yeah. Sure, Jan. Um <laughs> But I, but I will say again, this is one of my favorite jean looks. It's why I have it and why I like to wear it a lot. Um, I, I love a stupid, I love a stupid mask. I love a stupid headpiece. I love the classic uh, golden blue. Um, anyway, it's a cute look. Ten out of ten. Um, and also, it allows Jean to like have like her like nineteen sixties hair back when she was a model. And the fact that people didn't know that she was also Marvel Girl. Like with this red hair <laughs> is so like again, sure, Jan. Um, so again, so she finds out about the crystal, just to reconfigure something with a with a wine. Um, wine with, with wine? an age. Yeah, the sound effect again is a, is fantastic. <laughs> um, so then she bounced it off a satellite, sure. Uh, and then it hits. And also, so again, we see that Banshee has pointed ears, which yeah, again, yeah. what? why um so we get that little brief oh the, my other favorite part about this this whole page is that in like the little narration boxes it's like we needed a break from all of that action so let's go see what gene's doing <laughs> which, which is so funny gene has the weirdest on page uh, 15 there there's the weirdest machine off to her right like it's got like flames in crystal what is it's, that 
It's the crystal tracking system that <laughs> Professor X has made. Sure. It's so strange. I don't know what that machine is. It's like she's in the Batcave. There's some some some, uh, some bizarre machine on the side there. Um. So so anyway, so so Jean uses it to locate Banshee. Um. Is that there's no so on the issue. Uh, you know, as I'm reading, I don't have page numbers. So let me know if I need to keep going. Yeah, you know, that's a great place to stop. Okay. And, and Heather uh, and Ariana, did you have any thoughts on the X Men Spider Man battle? It's kind of fun, actually. Yeah. It is fun to watch for sure. And it though the whole time I'm thinking it's like this is unnecessary, but they're still doing it. <laughs> I mean, that's what superheroes do, right? You meet and you yeah. fight before you become friends. Exactly. Even if you've already met before, you still have to do it again. <laughs> Spider-Man actually Spider-Man actually references too. He's like, last time you guys saw me, you were trying to recruit me to your team, and I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're tackling me. What the heck? <laughs> I do also love that once again, Bobby has his long ice pole. Mm -hmm. Cause that's just his favorite and I love it. I just love that he's sneaking up on Spider-Man and it's like, if there was a man made of ice creating an ice bridge to slide over with an ice pole to hit me with it, I think I would have heard that. <laughs> <laughs> what sound effect does uh, the creation of an ice bridge make Ariana? Mm, the crackling sound. I can think of the font. I can't think of the words. <laughs> Would it be, mmm. <laughs> it's too smooth. <laughs> That's when it melts. <laughs> uh, Ariana, wrap up the issue for us. What happens uh, from page 69? Okay, so they've taken a break in between the fight. Um, at this point, Spider-Man's like, just like, hey, stop for 10 seconds with your hate parade, as he puts it, and <laughs> talk to me about this. And so he, they ask him about factor, uh, factor three. He's never heard of it. And Cyclops like, oh, he may be telling the truth, but we can't take that chance. <laughs> and even, you know, Hank is like starting to wonder, is like, maybe we shouldn't be fighting him. But it's like, oh, well, for the moment, mine is not to reason why. It's like, no, this is a really good moment to reason why. <laughs> why are you doing this? But this is kind of the cool moment of the scene. This is why you buy this issue is all of them, you know, jumping on to spider-man so he's trying to get away by going through the mill but yeah, we got to note really quickly there's a moment where they're like what if he works for factor three and spider-man says what's that some kind of secret ingredient also why would that be a recipe ingredient like i uh, put factor three into your soup it's like no i don't trust that Roy, Roy Thomas himself says, I realize now it sounds like a toothpaste brand. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's a bit meta when he's like, um, if you're always this friendly, no wonder you haven't won any popularity polls recently. And it's like, oh, rude. <laughs> Is he saying he's selling more books than them? Ouch. <laughs> well, he was. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, yeah. So I guess the, the fight continues. Hank uh, tackles him. Uh, Spider-Man box him on the head and he says this hurts you worse than it does me and I do like when Hank does this and he says stuff like oh I concur uh, was it I categorically concur and it's like that's silly <laughs> <laughs> but I do like that um Iceman managed to put a whole ice block on his feet but then Spider-Man immediately smashes that against the wall so that doesn't work and then 
I think, oh yeah, Angel comes at him, but that's when Cyclops decides to use um, his blaster finally. And that one, the sound effect is which <laughs> it sounds more electronic than it does sound like his I'd probably go rather go with Zap, but yeah. Well, that one might even be worse than Frap. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And it almost hits Angel, so rude, Scott. Um, Spider-Man manages to get out of the mill and throw himself into the water. And and as he's going down into the water, he's thinking, he's like, man, I hope it's deep. And luckily enough, the caption box tells us, yes, it's deep enough. He doesn't die. <laughs> <laughs> So as he splashes into the water, that's when Cyclops finally gets a call on his, what is it? Signal watch. And that's when Marvel Girl finally tells them, oh yeah, that signal you guys were after, as soon as you left, it was gone. <laughs> the thing was, is that she was sitting next to Cerebro this whole time for like how many hours it took for, for them to drive on their Rolls Royce to this location. And she's like, should I guys? It was only two miles away. Yeah, they ditched me here. I'll tell them later. I want to go through this. <laughs> I've got stuff to do. She has, she's busy filing. Yeah. And then <laughs> on page, page 18 is one of those moments where I'm like, wow, I'm so glad I'm not lettering this. Where you've, here's the thing with lettering art. Um, and artists will sometimes forget this, but a letter always appreciates when you get this down right. Speaker A when you're writing for Western books, since you you start at the top on the um, left side, they should be on the leftmost end. And speaker B next to them, speaker C next to them, that makes it a lot easier for me to have room to put in the balloons. Sure. And in this one, speaker A is the third person from the left, speaker B is on the left, and then speaker C is in the middle. And then you have speaker D all the way off to the side and on the right side, and it's like, this is, a lot of dialogue to try to fit in and it's not exactly stacking on each other because there's no room between their head and the top of the panel so they're just like you have the letterer trying to write around their heads to fit all the dialogue in and i mean noble effort jack sparling though mm -hmm. no no it's it's i'm I'm really impressed that the letter just attempted this. I think I would have looked at this panel and cried. <laughs> it's really tough. I to just do. I just said Jack Sparling. I meant Jerry Feldman. My Jerry Feldman, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, man, that's tough. Because I've only ever attempted to even eke the style once. It was in um, Marvel, the Marvel Pride anthology. Anthony did an Iceman short story and the first three panels is from a classic panel of X-Men that was redrawn by the artist. And so I also had to letter it in the same style. And it was really interesting to see how things were placed and how they worked within the panels in that old style and trying to copy that style without like, you know, just being a copy paste. Cause we weren't taking the panel and just copy pasting it onto the page, we were recreating the panel. And it's not easy. I yeah, yeah. I would have a hard time trying to recreate this on my own. <laughs> and these would be hand-drawn back then too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all of it would be hand-drawn. And it's like, oh, do you hand letter as well? It's like, no, I'm a digital letterer. It's, it's a lot more difficult to, if you can't draw by hand, you can still letter because you, as long as you're doing it digitally. 
um, you're just learning a different skill. But man, doing it by hand lettering is, is really challenging. I really look up to my production manager over in uh, Marvel, Sue. She used to be a hand letterer at Marvel, and she would tell me stories about other women who worked there, like Flo and uh, other letterers too. And, and it's like, man, the, the hand lettering was so much more challenging to do, and that they had to get it out every month. And it's like, wow, so impressive. And yeah, it's, it's different nowadays because you have to get books out quicker, so you have to stick to the digital medium. And I'm always impressed when a letter steps back and does a bigger book hand lettered because it's so much more difficult to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, where was I? Uh, page 19. Page 19. So at this point they realize it's a big mistake, which they could have figured out sooner if, you know. If, if Banshee typed more than three words into the goddamn warning. In the <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or I feel, I feel like, it probably they wouldn't even have had a fight if Marvel Girl was there because this is just like one of those instances where you got a bunch of bros in a room and they're going to fight before they figure anything out. Um, so they're trying to figure things out, but Spider-Man um, really doesn't have any info for them. Um, and he's like, guys, you, you, you are all nuts. This is all crazy. So they're like, okay, so this is not a good lead for us to find Professor X. We're all going to head back so they kind of like all crowd into their rolls royce and drive back to their hype house and spider-man's just looking at them all jealous he's <laughs> like he's only got a motorbike to head home in <laughs> well as they drive home in their rolls royce he's all wet there's, there's, yeah. a, there's a common thing with spider-man where they call it the parker luck right where he yeah, yeah. bad shit happened to him wherever he goes and he, the poor guy wanted a day off and he gets beat up by a bunch of mutants in the woods <laughs> <laughs> so he's like soaking wet he has to head back home in his motorbike and they just like buzz off on their nice Rolls Royce. And meanwhile, Marvel Girl is doing research through, she's basically map questing, but with a traditional atlas <laughs> to find out where to find Banshee that now that she's triangulated his position. And once they get back, she shows them where to go. And um, it looks like they have to go up into the European mountain range and to go rescue Professor Xavier. And the last panel, like before the next issue promo and stuff, it really gets to me because it's like this whole other sub story, side story that wasn't even a part of the rest of the issue. And it's just all in one panel. Yeah, we, get one, we get one panel of soap opera this issue. Yeah. And it's like, it's Cyclops saying, Gene, we'll be fighting the most powerful threat we've ever faced on this home, uh, on his home ground. I'd feel better if you weren't along, but I haven't the right to order you to remain behind, nor have I the right to stay while the professor, perhaps the entire earth is in deadly danger. And she thinks, but I'll never forget my darling, how he wanted to shield me to protect me from harm. And I'll always love you for it, no matter what. And I'm like, oh, ah. We need one more thought bubble with her going, mm. <laughs> I want one more thought bubble It's like, just kidding. <laughs> I, I want really more thought bubble of her being like, yeah, remember how I pegged you last night? <laughs> Maybe uh, that's why she thinks this way. It's like she already knows she's on top, so it's like whatever. <laughs> she already knows she's the top. One hundred percent, she is. And then we get a, a special next issue announcement uh, for the villain Mechano. Uh, the 
The X-Men, it warns us that the X-Men, you know, it, it, I'll read the blurb. It says, some people ride tramp stream steamers, others win TV quiz contests, but for the superpowered X-Men, get to Europe the hard way. Uh, they don't have money to get to Europe to go save Professor X. Literally, next issue is them trying to find funding to get to Europe, <laughs> which is adorable. <laughs> Listen, it was GoFundMe my wasn't a thing I would just sell the Rolls Royce and be like, Professor, sorry, we sold the Rolls Royce, but we know you have extra money that you never share with us. So you could just buy that back, right? <laughs> we needed to get to Europe to save your life. What did you guys think of this issue overall? I kind of enjoyed that it was a little more self-contained. A lot of the issues are so busy, but this one is just kind of a very simple side story, which is a little bit fun. I'm losing patience as a reader a little bit about Factor 3, like, okay, God, you've been talking about it for a year. Show us who they are already. But mm -hmm. I, I kind of like they brought Spider-Man in. The X-Men versus Spidey is a really fun trope, especially back then. So so I, it's it's definitely like a little bit of a filler of like, Oh, we're like, you know, we're still trying to build up the suspense of who the Factor 3 are. We have like the drama with Banshee that, you know, who we already know about. And then, you know, it's just this fun little like one-off. Oh, it's, you know, superheroes meeting and fighting. And, you know, it's kind of like that fun little, because even at the end, it's just like, oh, we don't need to fight anymore. Can I like, it's not even like really resolved or anything. They're literally just like, okay, deuces, we got to go. We got to go back. Like th this is, you know, this isn't what, what we want to do. It's it's fine like it's it, it's fine um but like knowing like kind of like you know what was going on i guess like in the books back then it was also definitely the uh um you know kind of like in the 90s when like wolverine would randomly show up in an issue it's like oh we're kind of not selling that well so like let's pull spider-man in randomly for like no real reason even spider-man himself was like wow, I'm on my motorbike and I've never come here, but I just feel drawn to this part of Westchester <laughs> County for, for some reason and I don't know why. And then it's like, oh, it's to fight this robot and then the X-Men are going to show up. Um, it, like, it's it's definitely kind of super corny, but also like, cool, I get it. You know, we're not, you know, for whatever reason, you're not quite ready to actually move the actual story along yet. So you're just kind of like, trying to find the ways it's sort of like um uh like buffy the vampire slayer where it's like you already know who the big bad is but they don't want to quite get you there yet so you have like the random uh episode with like the puppet in season yep. one where it's like you know it's it, it's it like it, nothing is happening that you definitely need to know for later but at the same time it's kind of like Sure, this is fun. This We're is saving fun it for little... the season finale. The, the threat yeah. of Factor 3 feels real, though. Professor X is gone. He's kidnapped. Banshee gets kidnapped. They've got these crazy powerful robots. The X-Men are, uh, you know, they have to get all the way across the ocean with no resources. It, it, the, the, the suspense is building. As You know, reading this in the 60s, I think I would have been pretty excited. Yeah. I think it works as a filler. And, um, yeah, like you were saying, it's it kind of felt like, they put Spider-Man in there just to be like, well, maybe we can get some of the Spider-Man readers in here. And they, you could tell that they were like, man, I hope we get some Spider-Man readers. Cause like at the start, when they start off with Banshee, they're like, well, hold up a moment. We'll get to the story. <laughs> Don't worry about it. we just have to spend some time with Banshee first. And it's like, you don't have to handhold. We bought this issue. So. Well, and and if you're listening to the recent episodes, we've had filler issues with the Warlock and with Tyr mm -hmm. Tyrannus, and they were dumb. This one's actually mm -hmm. pretty good compared to those other fillers, which were just ugh, like. Oh well, yeah, I guess famous. in comparison, it can be. <laughs> this one's actually pretty great in comparison. Yeah. 
I I enjoyed it. It was it's kind of surreal and weird, and it, it but it it was fun because it's just one of those books where you're like debating with your friends. It's like oh, well, who would win, the X Men or Spider Man, and and then just see how they go at each other, and mostly just playing the artist playing with the different strengths of the characters and seeing how they bounce off each other, and then the writer coming in and filling in any gaps that, that so that kids aren't confused when they're reading the panels. And then like putting in some one-liners and having them, you know, call them each other weird nicknames like Webhead or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, let me get your reactions to the cover of next issue. The X-Men fight Meccano. Meccano lives. Uh, I'll show you up close. Look at the uh, the lettering. Meccano looks all uh, all metallic, right? Ooh, like little that. bolts in there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a very forgettable villain who literally never appears again. I'll note that quickly, but uh, any thoughts on this cover? It's proto uh, Rob Liefeld with all the belts and pouches. <laughs> uh, Meccano is holding Cyclops very sensually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, Cyclops doesn't want to like use his blast that often. He usually keeps that reserved, but he's just going wild then. So that must not be present. As yeah. Jean very awkwardly runs up the stairs. Uh, and I'll give you a, pre a peek at page one where Beast is full on feeding his feet to someone. That's <laughs> cool, that's dynamic. <laughs> oh, this has been so much fun, you guys. I had uh, I had a really good time reviewing this with you, uh, getting to know you all better and hearing your stories and, and Ariana hearing you share your expertise and Demanda looking at your incredible cosplay. Uh, you're, you're stunning. Uh, you are turnt. I love it. You look amazing. Um, let's, uh, as we're concluding here, where can people find you online? And is there anything uh, coming up that people should look forward to in association with what you're doing? Uh, I'll go first very quickly. You can find Gray Malkin Lane on uh, on Twitter and Instagram, just under Gray Malkin Lane. I keep my own social media private because I have kiddos. Uh, we have some really amazing stuff. Our next episode after this is uh, I announced this on, on Instagram yesterday. It came out of the blue. It was very unexpected and very, very exciting. I got to do an interview with Roy Thomas, uh, who is literally writing these issues. And I got to ask him every 60s nerdy X-Men question that I could think of. He's 81. He was charming and wonderful and answered every question I had. And I'm, so, I'm still kind of buzzing from it. So that will come out right after this. Uh, and after that, this is the first time I'm announcing, I have an interview with Steve Englehart coming out which is oh. just ah, like I've been reading <laughs> comics for years and I, uh, I am absolutely flummoxed. Uh, the next episode after that is going to be uh, the return of our trials. We have the trial of Pietro Maximoff coming out. So the trial of Quicksilver. We're going to put him on trial for all of his very many, very heinous crimes. He's <laughs> it's the going worst. To be he's, he's, he's literally worse than Beast. He's awful. <laughs> awful Reread re Son of M if you haven't read it in a while and tell me how you feel about Pietro. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. Uh, uh, let's go in the same order as earlier. Uh, Demanda, Heather, and then Ariana. Where can people find you? What, what can we look forward to? So uh, you can find me uh, across all social media at D-M-A-N-D-A-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. Um, I, uh, I, I, I post pretty much daily um, I am, I have a couple of new looks and new things coming up, um, but the big thing, uh, two, two, well, a couple of big things, actually. Um, so the first is um, at the end of February, I'm going to be attending Farpoint Convention, uh, which is a sci-fi fantasy convention here in the Baltimore area. I'm going to be hosting 
three panels, as well as uh, singing at the opening dinner. And uh, we have put together the first drag show that will be at Farpoint Convention. Um, I will be joined by uh, some of my DC drag sisters who are also big nerds. Um, so if you are in the Baltimore area and you would like to come see a drag show and be nerdy with us, uh, please come see us at Farpoint Con. Um, I'm also in my other life doing hair for Little Shop of Horrors. So I'm actually going to be, uh, I have 16 more wigs to style. <laughs> so I'm somehow figuring out how to do that in 24 hours in a day. Um, so uh, that show opens up uh, the second weekend in March. Uh, and then coming up right on the heels of that, I am I was also just recently cast um, as Lady Bracknell in The Importance of Being Earnest. So I'm going to be uh, performing here in my hometown of La Plata. Uh, so if you are local to the sort of DMV area and you would like to come uh, see some uh, drag and some classical theater, uh, please, please join us then. Um, again, I have lots of, lots of cool other things going on. I'm also still performing all around the DC area. So uh, please come follow me figure out where I'm at. Uh, if, if you follow me on social media and uh, you come to a show, please come say hi. I love meeting people. Um, and hopefully we'll see you guys out there. Demanda, I think you're just incredible and so dynamic and so talented. Uh, let me tell a funny uh, little shop of horror stories really quickly. My, my, he'll get mad at me for if I share this. My 13 year old just got braces and he came into the house and he's got his brand new braces on and he goes, I hate these because he's got the slur, right? And he goes, when I got in the car, mom, like the, the uh, my ex-wife who I'm co-raising my kids with, he goes, mom made me say the phrase, suddenly she more. <laughs> <laughs> and I just cracked up, it was amazing. Uh, Heather, where can people find you? <laughs> oh, are you okay? <laughs> We're gonna have to edit this part, sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're good. Uh, Ariana, why don't you go next? Uh, where can people find you? And what do we have to look forward to? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, commentary, which is C-O-M-M-E-N-T-A-I-R-Y. Um, I, that's my main social media, actually my only social media that I use. So if you ever have questions about lettering, you can just DM me there. Um, uh, you can also reach out to me. Um, I, it also links to my portfolio, which is arianamar.com. And you can contact me through that as well. I sometimes talk about lettering or just promote some of the books that I'm currently working on. You can find my work in um, the Critical Role series, uh, Detective Comics, and for Marvel, a bunch of books coming out right now. I'm, I'm doing, like I said, uh, Marauders, um, X-Men Red, uh, Demon Days, and um, Knights of X. Uh, you'll see me for the first issue. I don't think I'll be there for the second issue and then I'll come back for the third because um, I'm going to go on vacation in March, the first vacation in, I don't know, decades. <laughs> I'm really hoping to be able to travel to Brazil to see my mom and introduce my husband to my mom. Really hope this works out. So fingers crossed. Um, I think that's it. Yeah. If you ever want to reach out to me or see what I'm up to, just check on my Twitter. <laughs> Ariana, I think you are just wonderful and so fucking talented. Thank you for sharing all of your stories and your expertise with us today. I learned so much. It's really fun. If you ever have questions about lettering, just reach out to me. <laughs> Thank you. And then Heather, where can people find you? Um, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter at 
Heather underscore Beth underscore. And sometimes I do fun stuff on there. <laughs> you do fun stuff with Gray Mulligan later all the time. Well, yes, I'm talking about on my personal social media. <laughs> Uh, you guys, thank you so much for being here. We will see you back here uh, next time on Cray Malkin Lane with our interview with Roy Thomas. Bye.